Yeah, I, fi- I find that I think a lot with you when I'm listening. It's not the case with so many other podcasts. Um, you know, it's really a conversation. So I think it's pretty hard to do that. In 2019, LFJL launched its annual justice lecture in partnership with SOAS. The idea is to bring in world leaders in their field to look at a legal question from the perspective of Libya. It is intended to bring a fresh set of eyes to look at questions that we have been considering for a while, which have a resonance on the global level, but with a Libyan focus. In our first year, we struck gold and had the incredible Pablo de Grief give us our first lecture. Pablo was the first special rapporteur on the promotion of truth, justice, reparation, and guarantees of non-recurrence. He is senior fellow and director of the Transitional Justice Program at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at the School of Law at New York University. And before that, he was Director of Research at the International Center for Transitional Justice. He is also a most amazingly nuanced and lucid thinker and was so incredibly patient with us. We are so grateful to his time, generosity of spirit with us, and just pure elegance. Enjoy the episode. My task is pleasantly brief and a joy namely to introduce Alham Saudi, tonight's moderator and director of Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Alham is a SOAS alumni, and the organization Lawyers for Justice in Libya is a true child of uh, SOAS, founded by Alham in those heady days of 2011. Since then, the organization has weathered a number of storms and has, under Alham's leadership, established itself as the foremost NGO working on human rights, justice, and the rule of law in Libya. Given the challenges posed by working on and in a country such as Libya, tonight's lecture is a timely inquiry into the meaning, scope, and limits of justice in such environments. We are privileged to have an organization such as Lawyers for Justice in Libya to provide us with insights into their valuable and excellent work on these issues in the course of the evening. Alham will introduce our speaker, Pablo de Grave, but I briefly want to take the opportunity to make a few personal remarks. Since I first met uh, Pablo in the mid-2000s when uh, working for Redress, I've come to admire him both as a wonderful person and as an engaged scholar. He has, throughout his career, combined theoretical and philosophical thinking with practical engagement, grappling with highly complex conceptual and political challenges. It was therefore entirely appropriate that he was appointed the first United Nations Special Rapporteur on Promotion of Truth, Justice, Reparation and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence in 2012, a very long title. I take it that they wanted to avoid the word transitional justice in it. During his time as Special Rapporteur, he demonstrated what an inspired choice he was. He worked uh, tirelessly and excelled in putting the newly established special procedure on the map, framing the mandate, identifying, clarifying major issues, visiting key countries, and engaging with a broad range of actors. And I take the memories are still fresh for you. I couldn't have wished for a better speaker tonight, and I'm very happy that you are able to be with us tonight, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you, Lutz, for that introduction. Uh, Lutz is the director of the Center for Human Rights Law here at SOAS, and um, my ex-lecturer and supervisor of my thesis. And so it feels very odd to be on stage with you in the audience, and this dynamic is very odd for me. 
Um, as Lutz said, LFJL started at SOAS, so it's a, it's a real source of pride that we're back here eight years later as a partner of SOAS on what we hope will be a regular uh, fixture in the calendar. In these eight years, LFJL has done a, a lot of work. I would um, even say some of it was, was very good. <laughs> um, but I think one thing that we brought, which um, is a source of, of real pride, is, is an innovative approach to working in a really difficult context. Uh, by way of example, we had we had to respond very quickly to things on the ground when the when the revolution uprising, whatever you call it, started in 2011. Key amongst them was um, introducing a, trying to train people on the rules of engagement and how to fight in a in a legal quote unquote way. We uh, texted the rules of engagement to every mobile phone in Libya and were able to get the information out quickly in a very difficult time. We also conducted the, the widest ranging uh, tour of the country to talk to people about the constitutional process and to genuinely engage them in what we think is a very vital and crucial process to Libya. Our anti-torture work was, was also um, sensitive to the victims, which is something we take a lot of pride in. Whenever we work with a torture victim, we ensure that we also take care of their uh, rehabilitation as well. So that is a really key part for us is that we acknowledge that the legal process is unsatisfying sometimes and is very long all the time, and that it's important to, to help people along the way. Now, our work is more pro sort of programmatic, but it's still responsive and it's still innovative. Uh, at the moment, just by way of example, we're, we're working on tracking drone attacks against Libyan civilians by third parties. We are, we've established an archive that allows those working on, on the ground to safely store their evidence digitally so that if it gets destroyed physically, at least it's not lost to the record and to history. And more recently, we've launched a project on increasing victim participation at the International Criminal Court. But being responsive is not easy, um, and it requires agility and the ability to move quickly. And with that, we face some challenges. The security and the personal threats are the ones that are most commonly talk, talked about, but those are the ones that sort of come with the package. The other, the other challenges we faced have been really difficult, and key amongst them is the resources that we face, um, the constraints on our resources, whether that's human resources or whether it's financial resources. I won't go on about our work, but I thought it would be important to introduce us. If you'd like to know any more about what we do or how you could support what we do, the smile at the end. You can talk to any of the LFJL staff afterwards at the reception. Please join us and, and, and do talk to us. One of the things we reflect on a lot at LFJL is what we mean by justice, not least because it is in our name and it's, it is what we say we work for uh, as an organization. And when we think about it, we thought actually what would be really interesting is to, is to have these series of lectures that gives us an opportunity once a year to just take stock, step back and really reflect on what this term means that we use so fluently. And what we wanted to explore is how, we do, how do we define justice, how do we operationalize justice, and how do we test justice? And when we thought about this important first lecture in this series, the choice was easy. I mean, this was one of the easiest choices we've ever made. Pa Pablo is, an, is a no-brainer for this. In addition to him being the UN's first special rapporteur, and I have to say it is a very long title, so I have to read it, on the promotion of truth, justice, reparation, the guarantee of non-recurrence. He's also the senior fellow uh, and the director of the Transitional Justice Program at the Center for Human Rights at the School of Law at NYU. But aside from that, I genuinely feel that he is the most nuanced and, com and comprehensive thinkers on the question of justice in the context of transition. And in addition to being a cerebral thinker, he's also passionate, which is such a rare combination to find in, a, in people working in, in the field. You, you often get one or the, or the other, but finding the two together is really incredible. The fact that he said yes when I asked him 
is a personal career high that I will not come down from for a very, very long time. And the fact that I got to have his pleasure over lunch today and really pick his brain makes this event sort of indifferent to me now because I got Y fix. Um, but also, I think what's crucial about Pablo is that he is not someone who is involved in the Libya situation. And for me, what we need now is just, to, as part of these lectures, we'd like to take a step back and have a fresh perspective and reflective conversation about this. And sometimes we who work in, on the question of Libya to day to day lose that perspective. And I think it's, it would be good to have that probed a little bit. For the topic of the first lecture, we wanted to reflect on the context of justice in what people increasingly are called calling a failed state. We hear it a lot, politicians, in country and out of country refer to Libya as a failed state. The media often refers to it the field, as a failed state. You'll see most recently last week an article in the, a very good article in the FT describing Libya in that way. And donors often also limit um, their involvement in Libya by declaring that it's a failed state. And often the term is used really to justify relegating work on justice to a, to a lower priority. And that's the danger of that terminology. I won't go on, but it's my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome Pablo to the stage. Thank you very much, uh, both to Lutz and uh, to Elham for extraordinarily kind uh, and uh, undeserved introductions of uh, the sort that almost guarantees that what follows will be a disappointment. So <laughs> I appreciate it immensely, and at the same time, it makes me apprehensive. I remember in an entirely different context uh, with uh, a government official uh, in a country that I visited who was not particularly keen of having to talk with me started criticizing what he called uh, the transitional justice industry. And then he said, and you are the CFO. And he did not mean that in praise. So <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate this extraordinarily. Uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, the very impressive work uh, that uh, lawyers for justice in Libya are doing. Uh, I have been very uh, by what you have accomplished and what uh, the plans uh, that you have. So it's an honor to be here, and it's an honor to be here uh, at SOAS. Last time I was here, as a matter of fact, I was reminiscing today, was uh, after the mandate had been established by the Human Rights Council already, but before anyone had been appointed to the position. So it's very nice, a sort of bookend experience. I came here before the, I assumed the mandate, and now I am back. Uh, having been done. So I appreciate it immensely. The fact that someone wants to invite me again after the six years uh, tells me that perhaps not all the efforts were uh, wasted. So thank you very much. I am delighted to be here. Thank you very much uh, for being here. I will make, I was asked uh, to make some uh, uh, remarks uh, and then we will engage in a conversation both with Elham and uh, with all of you, so I do not want to extend uh, myself uh, too much. I will divide uh, my remarks into three different uh, brief uh, sections. Uh, the first one is an introduction just to set uh, a bit uh, the terms of how I understand uh, the term transitional justice so that we make sure that we are 
are talking about the same thing when we use a term that, of course, is very heavily contested. It has porous borders, what it includes and what it excludes is still a question of debate. So I just want to give you my understanding of the term uh, transitional justice. In that first section, I will always say a few things about what I think the field has accomplished during its relatively brief existence. Uh, I remember in 1996, when I published my first paper on the topic, and uh, this is already 20 years ago, uh, which makes me feel old, but on the other hand, for a field, it's nothing. In 1996, no one used uh, the term transitional justice. It had not been coined. Uh, the reference, the sets of measures that I had in mind, of course, uh, existed, and uh, we thought about it uh, already as a sort of policy. But there was no such thing, not such, such term, as uh, transitional justice. So in many ways, uh, I would like to say a few things about what has been accomplished uh, in the last uh, uh, 30 years. The second part of my intervention is not so cheery. It's about my perception of the challenges that transitional justice faces, and particularly of the challenges that it faces in contexts such as Libya. I stop parenthetically to insist what Elham already warned you about. I am not a Libya expert. And in this age in which expertise has lost so much respect, I want to emphasize that. I won't even pretend. Now, this may raise a question about why on earth did Elham invite me, but you may ask that question of her. I'm very happy to be here, nevertheless. And in the third part of the intervention, I will want to make some remarks about what I think can be done in the very difficult context in which transitional justice is now more often than not being applied. So that's the plan, and I will try to stick to the 30 minutes I was given. So first, an understanding of transitional justice. Very, to put it very simply at first, I think that it is the set of measures that countries implement in order to come to grips with the legacies of massive and systematic human rights abuses. Now, around that general notion, one can elaborate it in many different ways, and I will do it here in terms both of measures but particularly of the links between the different measures. So as it is very familiar, the core of a transitional justice policy is usually understood in terms of four different elements, the ones that were included in my ridiculously long title as a UN rapporteur. Alexander may remember because he was kind enough to invite me several times for dinner at the Swiss a representation in Geneva. Every time that I was asked to sign a guest book, I would have to say, 
Do we have 15 minutes? Because just the title takes about 12. It's a ridiculously long title. You cannot have uh, uh, cards, business cards. You need a scroll because... So the, but it does have the advantage of being completely descriptive of what it is about. It is about four core functions that include truth, uh, justice, reparations, and the other category of uh, guarantees of non-recurrence, about which I will say a few things uh, later in the third part uh, of uh, my introduction. Now, what I would like to stress more than anything in this uh, first part is that those four measures do not form a random collection of initiatives but rather that there are very important links between the four of them, and that that is precisely what justifies their frequently made but rarely explained claim that transitional justice is a holistic notion, that it is a comprehensive policy, not just a scattershot set of efforts, but that, in fact, it makes sense to think about the measures in relationship to one another. There are two different arguments to defend the holistic nature of transitional justice policy. The first one is a very simple practical consideration, and that is that if we are honest, and I think that we must, and I think that we must for a very compelling reason, that awakening expectations of people who have already suffered a lot without having a reason to believe that we will be able to satisfy those expectations is a peculiar form of cruelty. And I think we should avoid it. So we must be very honest about the reach of transitional justice measures. I happen to think that the field has not been very disciplined in this respect that transitional justice has tended to overpromise and to simplify both the challenges that it always faces and the potential that it has. So I would like to start with a consideration that is actually part of the explanation of why it makes sense to think about the measures in relationship with one another, and that starts from the observation of the many ways in which individually transitional justice measures are somewhat weak. They are weak, and perhaps the best way of making the point is by starting by a descriptive claim. There is no country in the world that has investigated, prosecuted, and punished everyone that has been involved in massive and systematic human rights violations. None. There is no country in the world that has had a truth commission or any other truth-telling mechanism that has been able to disclose the whereabouts and what happened to each and every victim, or that has been able to clarify the many ways in which institutions have either participated in or enabled human rights violations. None. There is no reparations program established anywhere in the world that has been able to compensate victims in proportion to the harm that they have suffered. And finally, 
There is no country in the world, none, that has been able to reform all the institutions that, again, either enabled or participated in the violations. We ought to be honest about this. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of this. In my whole professional experience around transitional justice, I have tried to avoid studiously two extremes that I think are unhelpful in this domain. On the one hand, romanticism, you know, the idea that simply by willing change in the world, it will happen. That the only thing that is missing in order to fundamentally transform the world is either clarity or goodwill or a combination of the two. I think that the world is much more complicated than that, and that romanticism in this respect is an unhelpful attitude. On the other hand, I also want to avoid being cynical. If I were cynical, if I didn't believe in the importance of transitional justice, I wouldn't have spent 25 years of my life working on this. So I believe that this is very important. I believe it is very significant. But of course, I do not believe that it is either easy or that it is a magic bullet that solves all the problems in the world. In fact, just as I have been interested in the linkages between the elements of a comprehensive transitional justice policy, I am very interested in the linkages between transitional justice on the one hand and other fields of policy intervention with which it seems to me it has to interact much more than it does up to this point. And those fields include development, social, economic, and institutional development, and also security. In the absence of both, transitional justice will have a significantly harder time. So the first argument about the linkages between the different elements of a comprehensive transitional justice policy is a pragmatic argument. Because individually, each of the measures is weak. It makes sense to try to achieve synergies between them because they can lend some support to one another. Now, unfortunately, fortunately, we have now empirical evidence that this is indeed the case, that when the measures are designed and implemented in total isolation from one another, they are much less effective than when they are designed in relationship with one another as part of a comprehensive policy. And there are different ways of establishing that that is the case, including some sort of natural experiments in countries that have had experiences of the implementation of the measures singly and then comprehensively. And the very same countries show the difference in results when these are implemented as part of a comprehensive policy. Morocco, for example, is a very interesting experience that had two different reparations experience. One as a totally isolated uh, compensation mechanism and one in which the reparation was associated 
with the truth-telling mechanisms and with institutional reform initiatives. And despite the fact that the compensation in the second experiment, the quantum, the levels of compensation in the second experiment were lower than in the first, the degree of satisfaction and sustainability was significantly higher in the second. And that is an interesting piece of evidence about this. But it is not the only one. I will move, however. There is a second argument uh, to show that there are relations, important relations, between the four different elements. And the second argument is more conceptual in nature. And it responds to a question that, in many ways, it is puzzling that we still have to ask in the domain of transitional justice. And the question is, what's the point of doing this? Why do we engage in this exercise to begin with? And I say that it is surprising that there is no obvious question or consensus, because normally complicated policies are policies with respect to which we are very clear of why we take the trouble. With transitional justice, this is still a point of debate. I have argued in the past that there, are, that there is a sense in which reconstructively in the, reconstructively in the sense of trying to make sense of an already existing practice, like, for example, sociologists of law trying to give an account of why law develops and what is the point of it. Similarly, reconstructively, I think that there is something that the four measures share. Truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, as a matter of fact, share not just one, but four different sets of ends, of goals. First, providing recognition to victims. Arguably, every time that we establish a truth-telling mechanism, a prosecutorial strategy, a reparations program, or we engage in institutional reforms with a preventive intent. What we are doing, partially, is trying to recognize victims, their reality, their existence, and not just in their status as victims, but in their status as rights holders. We are using these mechanisms as signaling devices to tell victims and others that human rights violations are not inconsequential, that we take them seriously, and that when they happen, it triggers state action. The second thing that we are trying to accomplish in doing transitional justice is to try to foster the minimum conditions of civic trust. We want, again, to use these four different sets of measures, amongst others. It's not a closed list, and we can appeal to others. But these core measures of transitional justice to tell victims that they can trust others, and particularly that they can trust the institutions of the state. So again, there are signaling mechanisms with a particular end in mind, the fostering of trust. Third, and arguably, I think that these are devices to strengthen the rule of law. 
countries that take the trouble to establish these uh, four sets of measures are also trying to signal to citizens and to their own officials that the rule of law is important, that there is a set of norms that uh, the country considers to be absolutely fundamental, the violation of which, once again, triggers decisive uh, state action. And finally, there is uh, a fourth uh, end that I think all the measures, all the transitional justice measures share, and that is to foster what in some contexts is called reconciliation. I prefer to use the term as seldomly as possible because I think it's freighted with all sorts of resonances that are positive in some contexts, negative in others. But that in any case, what it refers to ultimately from my perspective is a certain type of social coherence. A, a minimum type of social cohesiveness, the sort of thing that we mean when we say that, for example, we want people to feel part of a shared political project and that the ultimate sense of citizenship, for example, is precisely that, to signal that we are all members in equal standing of a political project that we all share. I could elaborate on this account of transitional justice in detail, including, for example, to go one level of abstraction more and say what these four goals have in common. I think that they have in common two very important social mechanisms. All of them are mechanisms for norm affirmation, and all of them work to the extent that they do by their ability to articulate and to disarticulate social groups. But I will not get into the details. I just wanted, in the first part, to offer a conception of transitional justice and an argument for thinking about it in holistic terms. Now, the second point I would like to make in this brief introduction is that this thing that we call transitional justice has accomplished a great deal in the last 30 years. And there are very different ways of seeing this. Transitional justice managed to achieve a normative shift at the international level in that brief period of time. And that is a tremendous accomplishment when one knows anything about how difficult it is to change norms internationally. 30 years is an instant for the sort of normative change that has led transitional justice to become totally normalized in the sense that it is one of the expected set of measures that countries that are undergoing transitions are supposed to consider and to implement. We would not be here were it not for the fact that this normative shift has taken place. And there are legal instruments to back up that claim. Legal instruments of very different kinds from treaty laws to soft law instruments. But in any case, remember what called us tonight was a discussion about the relevance of this concept to a country like Libya. 
which is in many ways very different from the countries in which the original understanding of transitional justice takes place. But nevertheless, a good number of Libyans, but also the international community, expects Libya, among other countries, of course, to implement what we now call transitional justice. And I think that this is a tremendous achievement. Now, it is an achievement that doesn't simply have to do with a change in norms. Transitional justice has made great contributions to the realization of those norms. So it's not just a question of entrenching abstract rights to justice, truth, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence. It's that the field has guided the operationalization of those rights, and it has given guidance about how those rights can come to life. Transitional justice, for example, has helped us understand how to cope with amnesties in the domain of justice, how to solve problems of retroactivity and prescription, how to think about a prosecutorial strategy for those contexts in which not everyone can be investigated and prosecuted. These are very, very practical ways of operationalizing the right to justice. The creation of truth commissions, of commissions of inquiry, and of many other truth-telling, truth-keeping, truth-finding, and memorialization efforts has given concrete content to what we now call, with perfect comfort, a right to truth. 30 years ago, no one would have understood what a right of truth meant to accept, perhaps in a very visceral and abstract way. Now we know exactly what that means. And we know not just what the right means, we know how to satisfy it. We have a range of options about how to satisfy it. Similarly, transitional justice has made a huge contribution, not just to entrenching a right to reparation, but to entrench it in a particular way. Of course, the term reparations has a long history in interstate relations, but reparations for individual victims, victims of the state, for example, this is a novelty, and again, it's not just a textual novelty, it's something that transitional justice has taught us how to satisfy. Big, large-scale, massive administrative reparation programs for all their faults have given compensation of many different kinds to tens of thousands of people around the world. So I think that there's a lot that has been accomplished. The field can boast some great successes. So that's the end of the first part of my intervention. Now, the second part, of course, I said I am no romantic. So having talked about successes, let me talk about some of the real challenges that I think the field faces. All human rights work today faces some general challenges, as we all know. This is not a particularly good time for human rights. Let me mention three general challenges, not just challenges to transitional justice, but to justice and rights-related work, generally speaking. 
The first one is selectivity. There is a great deal of selectivity in the way that international human rights law is applied at all levels. And this is no secret, and I don't think that it requires much elaboration given time constraints. Not every country in the world is subject to the same sort of scrutiny with respect to its human rights record. And I think that this is a fundamental problem for human rights work. Secondly, the tendency to securitize issues to interpret challenges as if they constituted existential threats that therefore justify exceptional treatments and departure from the rule of law is a huge, huge challenge to human rights work. The fight against terrorism all over the world, for example, constitutes a huge threat to human rights world, and not because terrorism doesn't need to be combated, but because in the name of the fight against terrorism, great abuses and great departures from normal rule of law expectations are justified, breaking all sorts of human rights standards. And third, the so-called closing of civic space, the fact that more and more countries are adopting legislation that restrict the way that people self-organize and the way that uh, a social uh, civil society organizations operate, placing them under very, very heavy regulatory and reporting burdens with a great deal of government supervision and in some cases limitations. I think that this is a huge, huge threat uh, to uh, human rights. But uh, I want to now stay closer to transitional justice. I think that one of the fundamental changes that transitional justice faces is that it has acquired a very, very formulaic and technocratic character. And that one very easy way of seeing this is the fact that it is now being applied. The very same model is being applied across entirely different contexts. So a mini history of the field, if you allow me, would say what we now know as transitional justice, the model, took shape in the Latin American countries of the Southern Cone. In other words, authoritarian states that were very strongly institutionalized. Strongly institutionalized broadly in the sense that the institutions of those states, Chile and Argentina, for example, had the capacity to make themselves present in every corner of the territory of those states. Of course, it doesn't mean that the, the government of Chile and Argentina provided the same services, for example, in Buenos Aires and in Patagonia, but not because the state could not, but because it chose not to do it. In other words, the institutions of the state were very broadly distributed. They were also very deeply institutionalized countries in the sense that these were countries with very few legal vacuums. Either the legislature or the judiciary or both had already expressed itself over or expressed themselves over the fundamental issues that establish the relationships between citizens and the state. 
Now, the model took shape in that particular context also in response to a correlated set of violations, namely the violations that are typical of the abusive exercise of state powers. There are some violations that can be carried out systematically only with very strong institutions, not otherwise. Now, that very same model is now being applied, and we expect it to be applied, in other countries. In countries that are very different from Argentina and Chile, very different from the Central and Eastern European countries that in many ways inherited the model, very different even from South Africa, after which the model was dispersed very rapidly. We expect the same model to work, for example, we expected it to work very well in Liberia and in Sierra Leone. And today we expect it to work the same in Yemen, in South Sudan, in Mali, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the Central African Republic. And those, I want to say, are very, very different countries from Argentina and Chile. And they are very different precisely in the two terms that I attributed to the authoritarian countries. These are not strongly institutionalized countries, either horizontally or vertically. The institutions of the DRC are not at all present in every corner of the national territory. These are countries with huge legal vacuums in which parliaments and courts have not spoken about everything that is of importance in the relationship between citizens and state institutions. And correspondingly, what needs to be redressed in those contexts are not the violations that come about from the abusive exercise of strong state power, but rather the violations that resemble or that come about much more from something that resembles social conflagration than authoritarian abuse. Now, the fact that we can travel from Santiago to Kinshasa, making essentially the same recommendations when it comes to transitional justice, is something that should give all of us some pause, because Kinshasa is very different from Santiago. And I want to say, as far as I know, Tripoli is very different from Buenos Aires. So the field has become formulaic in a way that doesn't help. Now, the difference between a post-authoritarian and a post-conflict country can be characterized in more detail. But just rapidly, it is, of course, an entirely different thing to make, for example, attributions of responsibility. When you have a highly asymmetric situation of human rights violations in which the state, for instance, is responsible for 98% of the violations as they were in Chile and in Argentina. In the post-conflict scenarios, you have a much larger number of agents of violence 
the uh, responsibility for acts of violence and violations is much more symmetrical. There is a great deal of circulation between the different uh, armed uh, groups, which themselves do not correspond to the model of a highly hierarchical, well-organized institution as a regular army. And therefore, making attributions of responsibility in a context like that is an entirely different sort of exercise. And if that is true in terms of making attributions of criminal responsibility, it is also true with respect to the functions of a truth commission, which made perfect sense when, for example, the abuses took place under the veil of secrecy, as they happened in the authoritarian cases, compared to the very, very open and public nature of warfare, or, at the very least, of open conflict, in which no one is trying to hide anything. Now, this is not an argument against uh, uh, transitional justice in the post-conflict setting, because I believe that fundamentally the only way to restore a sense of a shared community is precisely to come to grips with the past. But it is an argument for thinking very carefully about what is it that we want to accomplish uh, when we implement uh, transitional justice, and particularly it is an argument for thinking very carefully about the shape that transitional justice ought to take uh, in contexts uh, of um, uh, that follow conflict. Let me just make sure. Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. So one more obvious consideration, one more obvious difference in, between the post-authoritarian and the post-conflict uh, cases is that transitional justice measures in the post-authoritarian transitions were precisely that, measures applied after the transition had taken place. In the post-conflict settings, countries like Colombia, for example, by the way, where I was born, are countries that have tried to implement transitional justice as the conflict is still taking place. Almost without exception, however, post-conflict countries implemented the measures when there are still very, very significant security deficits, even if the countries had already signed a peace agreement. Sierra Leone and Liberia, for example, are a perfect illustration of this. An agreement had already been signed. Nevertheless, conflict and violence in many ways continued. And this poses a fundamental challenge to the operation of transitional justice measures. Witnesses are reluctant to give, uh, to share evidence. 
they are, victims are very reluctant to give testimony to truth commissions. Designing a reparations program when you do not know the full extent of the universe of victims is very, very difficult because that's a universe that increases in size uh, over time. And reforming institutions, particularly security institutions, in times of conflict is not an easy task. Because in many ways, the country still depends on the provision of services by these very same people that you are trying to get rid of. So these are very, very deep challenges that the new contexts pose. And I want to add a couple. The implementation of justice measures in a context situation is an open invitation to do something that kills the purpose of transitional justice. And that is, it invites the use of justice as a hammer to combat your enemies. So rather than an impartial exercise that tries to bring a community together, post-conflict justice has a special burden not to appear as an instrument of turn-taking. We were disfavored and harmed before. Now that we have power in our hand, we will use justice as a way to take revenge on our opponents. And I think that this is a very, very difficult to do, and that most countries that have been faced with this have found it difficult. So these are some challenges. Now, the third and final part of my intervention. What can we do? I do not want to send the message that weakly institutionalized post-conflict countries need to resolve their security and development problems before they come back to us to talk about transitional justice. That would be a totally disheartening message. It would consist fundamentally of the message that justice is a luxury that only the affluent can afford. And I do not want at all my argument to be understood in this way. I reiterate, I think that it is time to rethink the modalities of transitional justice. And I want to give a sense of what some of these modalities can look like, can consist of, in the challenging post-conflict, weakly institutionalized countries. There are several things to bear in mind. The first one is that this will be a long-term process. It will take time. It actually always takes time. One should not lose sight of the fact that the great progress that Argentina and Chile have achieved in the domain of particularly criminal justice has been achieved 30 to 35 years after their transition. That for the longest time, this was a very, very difficult thing for both countries to accomplish, with respect to which they had very, very few results to show. 
Now they do, but we tend to forget that time has passed. So in 2010, I was invited by the World Bank to take part in the articulation of their annual report, which uh, in that year was about conflict and development. And by the way, I recommend it. It's the 2011 World Development Report because I think it is perfectly relevant to situations such as Libya's. Now, the most interesting part of that report, from my perspective, is that the bank commissioned research on rates of institutional change. The bank had developed many years before, 15 or 20 years before, a, go a governance index with four or five different measures about the quality of governance. And it had a numerical ranking of different countries around the world. But up to that point, it had never done a study of how fast countries can improve on their governance index. So it commissioned research to do that. Now, the results were the following. In order to take a country at the level of governance of Haiti, which at the time was pretty low and is still pretty low, not to the level of Denmark, because that will be a huge leap, but to the level of Ghana, a middle-income country with more or less decent functional governance. Based on the average of all the countries of which the bank had information, it would take between 25 and 45 years to take the country from Haiti to Ghana based on the three historical top performers, that is, the countries that transform themselves more rapidly than anyone else, the average would go down only to between 17 to 23 years. These processes always take time. And I think that it is important for us to internalize the message for the international community to be prepared to stay with countries throughout the loan transformation and for both government officials and civil society members to commit themselves to that. After having worked with the Moroccan Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they organized a national conference and uh, they invited me to this. So this was my last time uh, working uh, uh, on the topic in Morocco. And I sent a message that I am still convinced that is correct. To government officials, I said, you should take every opportunity to act on behalf of justice and rights as if it were your last. To members of civil society, by contrast, I said, never think that this is the last chance. It is always a process. It is always a long-term process and never, ever despair. And I think that this is the first thing I would like to say about the difficulties of uh, transitional justice in post-conflict context. The second observation is one that should be obvious. Transitional justice is not a standalone policy even if you apply it comprehensively, even if you establish the four different mechanisms, it always rests upon a much larger web of institutions, cultural dispositions, 
and it is therefore very deeply connected with other topics, such as constitutional reforms. So let me illustrate this point very briefly. I was very heavily involved in Sri Lanka in 2016 and 2017. That's a country that separated discussions about constitutional reform from discussions about transitional justice, as it normally happens, by the way, and as it normally happens with the support of the international community that separates this as if they were totally isolated uh, topics. Support for each of them normally comes from different uh, parts of ministries, different sources, and there is very little combined uh, expertise. Now, I think that both projects suffer. In the case of Sri Lanka, there was absolutely no way to move forward without, for example, very deep reforms in the office of the Attorney General. The office of the Attorney General in Sri Lanka, like in many English uh, countries where English law has uh, had an influence, combines the function of the state advocate with the function of a prosecutor investigating and prosecuting cases. Now, because of the peculiarities of the case, which actually are not so peculiar, but rather widespread, the state advocacy function is taken much more seriously than the prosecutorial function. And that means that the attorney general has zero incentives to make investigations against uh, state agents for human rights abuses. Now, nothing will change in the transitional justice domain in Sri Lanka until that changes. But that requires a constitutional reform and therefore should have been part of the constitutional reform discussion. Similarly, in the long term, the fate of Sri Lankan democracy, from my perspective, depends on thoroughgoing security sector reform. This is a bloated uh, uh, military a bloated and slightly out of control intelligence service, and until both are placed under effective civilian oversight, there will always be a threat uh, to civilian institutions. That also requires a constitutional reform. Now, constitutional reforms also depend for their sustainability on taking justice seriously. There was no possibility of a successful constitutional reform in Sri Lanka that concentrated exclusively on the issue of devolution of powers to minorities without taking seriously the fact that the Tamil minority in particular had very deep grievances, not just about the way the conflict was ended, but historically. The sustainability of a constitution as the expression of a shared political project cannot ignore claims, perfectly justified claims for justice of a large part of a country's population. So these issues are interrelated. And this is the second observation I would like to make. I know that this is a big issue in uh, Libya. I think that the international community and many uh, nations make the mistake of thinking that they face a dilemmatic choice, either stick with an old, dysfunctional, undesirable constitution or adopt in a rush an entirely new one. This is a totally false dilemma. 
Many countries have experimented with transitional constitutions. They include South Africa, for example, which for a long time had 34 principles that stemmed from the negotiation between the African National Congress and the National Front. And this was the constitution for a while. And it took years for the framing of a constitution that was subsequently adopted. And I think that the post-conflict countries should take this very seriously because drafting a constitution in the midst of conflict is a particularly hazardous exercise. You have not only the same security concerns that we have talked about and that may have an impact on the transitional justice institutions, you do not have everyone at the table who should be at the table, and you do not have the conditions to think comprehensively about a constitution that truly embodies shared values and a vision of a political project that all citizens share and around which they can rally. So despite the fact that these are topics that are interrelated, they do not need to be resolved immediately. Now the same, a similar argument can be made with another argument that, is very, that typically arises in the post-conflict situations about sequencing. This is a very old argument that first developed around not questions of justice, uh, in particular, but of democracy. So the old-style developmental theory in the 50s and 60s was countries first secure uh, guarantee safety, then they try to develop economically, and only then do they become democracies. The, uh, the current version of that argument is you achieve security first, then you do development, and then you worry about justice. That is, once again, an argument on behalf of the idea that justice is a luxury that only the affluent can afford. And I want to say it's not just that I find it morally objectionable. No, but In the old demo democratic argument, it simply was tantamount to asserting that there were countries that were incapable of um, adopting democracy. In the human rights justice arena, it is tantamount to saying, again, Come back and talk about justice only when you have your, all your security and development problems solved. It is also conceptually incoherent because, in fact, in order to guarantee security, ultimately, except for totalitarian states, security forces need the collaboration of citizens. They need to be trusted by citizens because otherwise the only alternative is total supervision. So it turns out, similarly with development, development we now know is not just instrumentally aided by justice. Development partly consists of conditions under which people can exercise their justice claims. So the point I'm trying to make is that the sequencing argument is an oversimplification of a much more complex set of relationships between security, development, and justice. This is not 
again, to take back the idea that there are important constraints that are placed on a transitional justice program by lack of insecurity. But it is an argument against the idea that justice needs to be postponed into the indefinite future. And I will finish because I'm afraid that I have spoken for longer than I expected with an additional set of considerations about things that I think can be done in the post-conflict situation in order to aid the cause of justice. The work of justice doesn't, belong, doesn't start with a transition. In Argentina and Chile, the work of justice was preceded by 20 years of efforts on the part of different civil society organizations to collect evidence, to build up files, to construct cases. I think that this is a fundamental but very well-known part of the topic. The work of justice is greatly aided by providing support for victims, and not just legal aid, because uh, transitional justice is not simply criminal prosecutions. But there is a lot that can be done on behalf of victims that is absolutely fundamental to the cause of justice, and not just because the victims deserve the care and the efforts to increase their well-being, but, for example, work on the topic of the disappeared work on the issue of property restitution, work on psychosocial support for victims, are examples of things that will be very, very important for transitional justice down the line. And finally, two practical recommendations. I know no transitional justice program that has succeeded without a strong civil society. Governments, I have never met a government that says spontaneously, great, now we are going to do justice. Governments are pushed into justice efforts and they are pushed by strong demands by civil society. So one fundamental question that I think all post-conflict countries should be asking themselves is, in the wake of the havoc that is left by conflict in terms of the disaggregation of civil society, what can be done in order to strengthen civil society organizations that may be individually very strong, but collectively quite weak? And therefore, for example, thinking about networks of civil society organizations, including, importantly, networks that can bridge some of the divides that are characteristic of conflict, I think is very important. And finally, and I apologize for the length, I think that we should never forget that significant and sustainable social transformation is not simply a project in institutional engineering, but that it also involves changes in terms of culture and in terms of personal disposition. So something that can always be done, that doesn't need to wait until the end of conflict, that can be done very actively and probably long before a criminal justice measures can be implemented, is 
to think about cultural projects that, for example, explore the sources of social solidarity, to think about uh, cultural interventions that strengthen the sense of tolerance, that think about something that I think we have lost, the ability, and that we lose particularly in the wake of conflict, to think about notions of the common good and to be able to articulate arguments about a common good that can subsequently be codified in a constitution seems to me to be a pending and always pending piece of work and one that can be done at any, any time. So in the end, despite the difficulties and the challenges that the post-conflict countries pose, which of course I do not want to minimize, I do not want to think or to convey the message that nothing can be done. It is very difficult, but it has been done, and I think that we ought to put much more efforts into it than we have, because in fact, most of the transitions today are not post-authoritarian, but post-conflict. Thanks a lot, and sorry for I might ask one question and then open up to the audience because I know there's a lot uh, that wants to be asked. You mentioned, you talked quite a lot about sequencing um, and actually one of the frustrations that we've certainly faced is the common phrase and a literal phrase we've, held, we've heard from international actors is justice can wait. And, and that is literally a literal phrase. And for us, it is, it's frustrating because there's, there's almost this dichotomy of a sequencing in terms of prioritizing security and stability, but then at the same time rushing the Constitution. And it's almost as if the Constitution is a, is a, is a box that must be ticked in this toolkit. And it's the token gesture towards justice, because we're saying, oh, we're putting in this framework for you, and so then you can work with it. But I guess my question to you is, in the Libyan context, we're seeing the constitution f becoming almost a part of the toolkit as opposed to an outcome of the transitional mm -hmm. process. And for, for me, that's a very dangerous comp compromise to, to use as a, is the constitution. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit about the way a constitution can be used or abused in a transitional process. The danger, as with the, the justice measures, is that the constitution will be taken as an instrument of turn-taking. And when a constitution is drafted in the midst of conflict, it is almost inevitable that what it will represent is the balance of power at the time. Conflict is not the sort of condition that invites impartial deliberation. Conflict is engaged in by human beings by, for a complicated set of reasons, but one of them certainly is a failure of communication. The perception that argument is uh, no longer useful, usually erroneous, but nevertheless a fact. And under those conditions, the idea that one will articulate a framework in which everyone will feel included is virtually impossible. If people had the ability to think in another regarding fashion, they would not have been in conflict to begin with. Let's be 
perhaps a bit simple-minded, but realistic at the same time. So again, I think it's remarkable how little the international community learns about this. I mean, the tendency to think about democracy solely in terms of elections, for example. The tendency to think about constitutions as basically a project in institutional engineering as if it did not embody other values and other dimensions. It is remarkable. We have been down this road in many different countries around the world and the results are always insatisfactory. And what is particularly frustrating is that, again, I want to insist, this is a false dilemma. South Africa did not feel that the only option was to preserve the apartheid constitution or to adopt one in 1991. Poland did not think that the only faces it could, the only choices it faced in 1989 was to keep the older communist constitution or to adopt one in a rush. It did something, in fact, in some ways analogous to South Africa. It adopted what it called a small constitution, which was basically a reform of the old communist institution, erasing the primacy of the Communist Party and outlining the very basic outlines of divided powers. But it understood that it was going to need a long time to draft a constitution with a participatory method, and therefore it postponed it. And only years later, it adopted a full constitution. It seems to me that this is something that post-conflict countries should explore much more seriously. You, you alluded to this concept of a toolkit with transitional justice, yeah. that people, you know, you, you, these are your tools and you use them. Yeah. In fact, I've seen manuals of transitional justice that are, that are marketed. And one of my early memories of of being in Libya was this effectively plane load of experts landing within months of the of sort of the the end of the of the fall of the Gaddafi regime, purporting to effectively market a transitional justice mechanism. And a really odd moment was in a meeting room saying, "Well, you know, once this is successful, well, you can make a really good living out of this." Was a piece of advice I was given. And for me, I think this monetization or this industry that was created out transitional justice is actually giving it a very bad name because it is that copy-paste approach that we see to to the transitional justice process and the lack of nuance in it. And so I was just for me what I what I guess is must there be a deliberative way of doing things? Or you know, where is the room for nuance or is the room for for some kind of innovation when even the you know the title of your mandate almost prescribes yeah. that you have these four elements for it to be you know, that's what you need and you must tick these four boxes. So how do we move away from that in, in a context like Libya where, you know, one of the first PSAs I saw on television was explaining to people what transitional justice was. And in, in March of 2011, we started the revolution in, in, in February, sorry, in March 2012, so a year later. Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's thinking about this term that's being used, but also what the reality means and what, what losses we might have in the pursuit of a standardized format. To be fair, this is a problem that afflicts not just transitional justice, but work in general. So economists have a name for this tendency. They call this isomorphic mimicry, not the tendency to think that the very same institutional form will work under all circumstances. Think about, for example, the fate of anti-corruption commissions. Once the world came 
up with the idea of an anti-corruption commission. Then the model was uh, uh, propagated all over, regardless of cultural circumstances, economic habits, uh, I mean, all sorts of things that are, of course, absolutely fundamental to the nature of the existence and the modalities of corruption. So the same model was assumed to work uh, everywhere. So the, I think that, the, to be frank, uh, part of the reason for this is sociological. The process of professionalization, which, in which all of us uh, here, to some extent or another, engage in, is a process that requires students to demonstrate competency with respect to the existence li existing literature. And the existing literature, of course, once a field consolidates, it means that it has some paradigms. So people are tested on competency with respect to a pre-existing way of uh, doing things. And therefore, it is very likely that the next case they will treat in exactly the same way that they have been educated uh, to deal with the problems of a similar type. Now, part of it is uh, a great blessing. No? It's part of the manifestation of the fact that we learn. and. Uh, the steepness of, layer, of learning curves in transitional justice process obey this thing. The pitfall, however, is that we get used to the idea that there is a formula. And that is what I do not think uh, works. Now, the fact that transitional justice can be described uh, as having these four core elements, truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, I do not find uh, objectionable. What I find objectionable is that the fundamental question that countries then start asking themselves is, what is the best way of establishing a truth commission? What is the best way of establishing a reparation program? In other words, fixation on the institutional forms again, rather than trying to raise the question, what is the most effective way of giving life to the rights to truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence? That should be the fundamental question. And in different contexts, the institutional formations may look very different. But I think that that's the sort of thing that we should be worrying about, not uh, how do we establish a truth commission here. In April of last year, I went to the Gambia, where incidentally, I think that a truth commission would work very well given the characteristics of the case. But I had a meeting with the Council of Ministers and I asked them, how did you come up with the idea of a truth commission for the Gambia? They looked at one another until one of them said, well, isn't this what we are supposed to do? <laughs> it's that sort of thing that I think we should avoid. Uh, I think that we ought to be clear about what is it that we try to accomplish, what are the relevant rights, and how best to satisfy them. I, I will not ask any questions. <laughs> I could just be here the whole night. Uh, I'll open it. I'll open it out to the audience. Um, if I ask that you kindly uh, introduce yourself briefly, I'm looking for questions and not interventions. Uh, we're, he we're here to hear from Pablo. I'm very happy to hear people's views at the reception afterwards. I have been told by my team to mention the hashtag several times. <laughs> I am, I'm too old <laughs> to remember this. So it's hashtag annual justice lecture 19. It's being streamed live. So we do have questions from Facebook for you as well. Um, I feel so modern saying that. It's really quite satisfying. Um, so, I'll, so I'll open it up um, now. 
So I might take a group. There's a gentleman there with the purple tie. Thank you. My name is Richard, Richard Timmis, and I'm, I, I'm a solicitor. I practice in human rights. But my question is really about South Africa. And with South Africa, um, we are now 25 years beyond yep. the conflict, or more or less beyond it. Um, and we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and my question is, how do you rate the success of that, looking back 25 years? And where do you think South Africa has got to on the governance scale that you mentioned in, in your talk? Great. Um, I'm going to try and see if we can get a few. There's a lady um, here. And then there's a lady up at the very top. I do talk some more. Thank you for the presentation. Veronica Inestrosa, International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute. So you mentioned that transitional justice requires time to achieve transformation. But when could one claim that a transition is over? When could one say that a country can go back to its ordinary measures? Uh, my name is Leila Eludat. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I have two questions, please. My first question is, since international law has been put from a male-centered perspective and, and grave human rights violations do not ne necessarily take into consideration experiences of women or the disproportionate impact of the conflict on them, could you tell us about transitional justice that actually works for women? Uh, and my second question is about the uh, transformative nature of transitional justice, especially when restitution risks put, putting certain groups of people um, in a disadvantaged uh, position, and when transitional justice can be used to make serious changes uh, to society. What developments has been made on the transformative function of transitional justice? So let me take them in reverse order, if I may, and uh, very briefly, but I won't be able to do full justice to any of them, but ju just make a few remarks uh, about this. First on the gender thing. I do not want to claim uh, by any stretch of the imagination that this is something that uh, transitional justice has figured out completely, but I do think that the great progress has been achieved uh, in uh, uh, taking women into account uh, in uh, transitional justice measures. Let me illustrate this uh, very briefly. The first uh, set of truth commissions had absolutely no notion of the importance of any sort of gender considerations. There were gender neutral, not by design, but uh, by, in a certain sense, uh, this was uh, how things were done, and that, that meant that, as you correctly point out or imply in your question, women were left uh, aside. The Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, was the first commission that had a gender unit that tried to mainstream gender considerations in the work of the commission, and I have to say, with some success. In many ways, perhaps surprisingly, the Moroccan uh, Truth Commission made huge strides with respect uh, to gender considerations, including the fact that, from my perspective, it is the most gender-sensitive reparations program of any program. And I said that to some extent it may have been surprising because, for example, in the first session that I had with the plenary of the commissioners, 16 men and one woman, by the way, I asked them for their preliminary thoughts about how to deal with gender issues. 
And one of the men raised his hand and said, Monsieur Grave, this is a Muslim country. We have no such problems. And I said, I am not a country expert, but if what you are telling me is true, it would make of Morocco a total outlier in terms of human rights violation anywhere in the world. That was the starting point. The end point was a program that, departing from Sharia with respect to the distribution of benefits, it benefited not just female victims, but female family members of victims in a way that no one expected, took them into consideration in many different ways, in a way that really makes uh, the program the most gender-sensitive reparation program of any of the ones that I'm familiar with. So we have learned quite a bit. Again, I do not want to overstate the case. I just want to say we have come a long way from the beginning. On the transformational side of transitional justice, again, I want to avoid extremes of both cynicism and romanticism. I think that we ought to be very realistic about what we are talking about with respect to the transformative potential of measures that are weak in the ways that I indicated before, and in many other ways, including the fact that they are invariably ad hoc measures. They are not part of an enduring institutional network, for example. They are not part of ministries. They are not they do not subside. They exist for a short period of time. They are usually under-resourced. They are usually understaffed. And from a functional standpoint, they were designed for certain things and not for others. There is a question about resource endowment that I think it would be totally naive to ignore. So I did a rough calculation for one of the reports I presented to the Council about this. In, uh, when the Chilean transition took place in 1990, the Chilean government's income per capita was close to $600. In 2000, when the Arusha Accord was signed for uh, establishing peace in uh, Burundi, Burundi's government received $24 per year per capita. Liberia's government in 2002, when the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was signed, received $12 per capita. Per, and so let's be clear. The Liberian government had $12 per year per person to do everything that our government is supposed to do. Pay credits, interests on the credit, infrastructure investments, education, health, and justice. So I think that we ought to be very clear about what transformative justice can mean in a context like this. Because again, I fear that unless we are very serious about this, we are going to be awakening expectations in a totally dishonest way. I think that the transformative dimension of uh, transitional justice in contexts of that sort and that Libya in many ways is not this because it has resources that other post-conflict countries do not have. But nevertheless, it does have uh, its institutional challenges. I think that the transformative uh, contribution of transitional justice at this level ought to take place at particularly uh, at the level of the linkages between institutions, culture, and personal dispositions, that there is great space 
for making contributions in the development, for example, of a culture of citizenship, making real for the very first time the idea that citizens are rights holders, that it is perfectly all right for them to raise claims against the state. That is hugely transformative. But the idea that transitional justice will take people from hell to heaven in a short trip, I don't think that that has worked ever. And nevertheless, I think that there is the transformative potential that ought to be stressed. Veronica, your question. One, so one of the advantages of the very long title that the mandate had was that it allowed me to escape the burdens of questions about the beginning and the end of a transition. So in this respect, I think that the Council was wise. Transitional justice is a terrible term for many reasons, not just because it invites questions of this sort that are very difficult to resolve. It also suggests that transitional justice is a special kind of justice. And this is something that I totally and absolutely oppose. I think that transitional justice describes a set of strategies for achieving perfectly familiar conceptions of justice under very difficult circumstances. Not that it refers to a special sort of justice, particularly a soft form of justice. So I think that we should, in a certain sense, try to leave that question aside and concentrate on giving reality to rights, acknowledging that under some circumstances that's a particularly difficult thing to do, but the right to justice, truth, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence are the core of the concern, not the transition. And finally, with respect to South Africa and its Truth Commission, I think that the Truth Commission played a very important role, first in the development of the field. I mean, there is absolutely no question that the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission is one of the most important commissions ever. However, there is a downside to its having constituted itself as a model. It gave the impression that truth commissions are an exchange for legal amnesty. And in fact, only of the more than 40 truth commissions that have existed around the world, only the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission had this function. And the function was actually much, as you know, much more sophisticated than a pure truth for amnesty exchange. Different committees were responsible for making determinations about amnesty of the more than 8,000 requests for amnesty, fewer than 700 were granted. Those people should have been open, were open to prosecution. And in my view, some of them should have been prosecuted. And I think that that would have changed our understanding of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The question about governance is an interesting one. What's the connection between these uh, things, the transitional justice measures, strictly speaking, and uh, changes in governance? I think that it is very difficult to make a direct uh, a link. The measures, after all, were not designed for this purpose. 
But I want to say that in other contexts, for instance, in the case of Guatemala, that tried to prosecute uh, uh, former General Rios Montt unsuccessfully, as it turns out, uh, in the end. But nevertheless, he had to submit himself to a trial. And for people who were used to thinking that the law was only for the poor and that no one with power had to submit himself to the discipline of a court, seeing this, seeing a judge tell the former dictator, it's not your turn to speak. No, you cannot say this right now. No, you cannot address me in this way. In other words, a visible representation of the rule of law, I think that this is very significant. That it is one of the things that makes people acquire a self-understanding of rights holders. And I think that this is fundamental. Uh, hi, uh, Amir Al-Saman, uh, international law master's student. So my question for you is about a case, that, which is Lebanon. And Lebanon, after the civil war, uh, it hasn't been able to move on in a certain sense. And the idea of transitional justice has not been able to manifest because of political constraints. So my question is, how can someone or how can you in your position try and move towards the idea, the general idea of transitional justice when you have a lot of political constraints and political liabilities in a sense that prevent transitional justice from occurring. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Rayhan. I'm just an engineer. In my opinion, a lot of what has happened in Libya has happened due to outside intervention. A way of getting more transitional justice would be to empower the Libyan people themselves to um, put in your four fundamental um, strategies. Um, so how, how do... How does a country like Libya, who have many people who are interested in our resources, how do they stop that and how do they enable themselves to, to have that transitional justice without the outside, outside intervention, I guess? And one final, oh, there's two, one there. At least you want to grab the one from Salem. And... Yeah, uh, Salem El Mayar, I'm a, a council member of the Society for Libyan Studies here in, in London. Has there been any country that achieved a transitional justice without uh, a constitution, you know, consensus on a constitution, and the security? I just want to ask, actually, because you mentioned the interconnectedness between the policy goals of foreign states and also the security development and, and development, etc. Even the issues that supersede sometimes uh, justice or transitional justice, like, for example, counterterrorism or immigration, they're still approached on an ad hoc short-term basis. So how do we expect uh, transitional justice to first be at the forefront and second of all also be uh, looked at in the long term from a long term perspective? Because often what the actors that state support uh, are often the ones that repress civil society in the first place. So thank you very much uh, for the questions and for your kind uh, comments about my very long uh, intervention. There is a question, for example, in the case of uh, Lebanon and generally speaking in the case of uh, places in which uh, there are lots of political constraints. I, of course, uh, wish that I had a magic bullet and uh, someone said uh, in my position, I no longer have any position that allows me to do anything more than engage in discussions of uh, this sort. But 
there is a sense in which one should perhaps take some consolation from the fact that again and again it is shown that these sorts of problems do not go away. People do not forget. And this is true regardless of background, tradition, religious or legal preferences. Uh, developmental uh, factors, people refuse to forget what happened. And that means that either now or in 15 or in 30 years, the issue comes back to the agenda. The Spanish Civil War concluded in 1939, and Spain is still mired in debates, including legal debates, uh, about uh, the end uh, of the conflict. So there is a sense in which uh, if uh, uh, leaders were wiser, they would understand uh, that it is better to deal with uh, these issues uh, head on, to do it earnestly, that people in the end, you know, I have never met uh, uh, victims that have completely outrageous, uh, inflated uh, expectations. Of course, uh, there are victims that are poorly informed uh, about what is feasible. But there is no transitional justice process that I am aware of that has been derailed completely by, the fa by obstinate demands on the part of victims. The needs of victims are actually, in most cases, satisfiable. The position of government that this is too difficult, that it is too expensive. I, with all the governments that I have ever worked with, the starting point, for example, with respect to reparations has been, oh no, we cannot afford this, this is too expensive. So I ask, how did you come to that determination? And show me the basic accounting that you have done, the basic calculations of the cost. And it turns out that they never do it. They just assume that this is too expensive and that it cannot be done. In fact, it can be done. And the political economy of reparations, for instance, is interesting. There is no close correlation between beyond a certain threshold one has to say. There is no close correlation between national wealth and uh, munificence in reparations. There is a close correlation between political organization and successful reparations, but not necessarily wealth, again, beyond a certain threshold. So I think that this is the general lesson that I would like to draw. There is very little that can push a totally recalcitrant government to do certain things, except that now international pressure is becoming more and more active in this sense. No? There are expectations pertaining to this. Lebanon, cases like Lebanon, I think, in a certain sense, because of temporal considerations, and also partly because of geographical location, have fallen off the cusp. We are talking about uh, some of the violations in Lebanon took place, in a sense, before the paradigm really took shape uh, internationally. Spain is, uh, for example, in the same category, and to some extent, 
the UK, which I visited officially with respect to the Northern Ireland uh, conflict. So these are cases that, at least in part for uh, temporal reasons, uh, are not uh, the main focus of attention. But the main point I would like to stress is people do not forget. The problems do not disappear, and therefore they will come up in one way or another, no matter what. Uh, I think that uh, there are some countries that are cursed uh, with being the object of a great deal of geopolitical interest. And uh, uh, not surprisingly, there is some correlation between things like oil and uh, uh, that sort of interest. And of course, uh, that uh, doesn't always help. The agenda of, inter of the international community is not always coherent. It's often at cross-purpose, and uh, increasingly so these days. So even a country with uh, very little uh, geopolitical interest from an economic standpoint, like Burundi, for instance, where I also worked uh, a great deal as a special rapporteur, the Security Council has been incapable of coming to an agreement about press releases, not resolutions, press releases about Burundi. And the reason, of course, is that a discussion about Burundi, which really has very little economic interest to anyone. Uh, the total uh, direct investment in Burundi, foreign direct investment in Burundi in 2016 was $8 million. That's less than a corner Starbucks in London, I assure you. So this is not uh, of great geopolitical interest. But because of how the dynamics within the Security Council have developed, they cannot agree on a I'm sorry to use the word, freaking press release. Not a resolution, a press release. So with respect to a country like Libya, where there is something at stake by comparison in economic terms, I think that in that respect, it's going to be much more complicated. And that for that reason, it is particularly important for Libyan civil society to exercise as much control as possible over the situation, and there is no way of doing that in the midst of total fragmentation. Libyan civil society has to come up with basic understandings about where they want the country to go before they can resist international intervention. And finally, on the question of the constitution. Actually, numerically speaking, I would say that half of the countries that have implemented transitional justice measures have not engaged in very deep, thoroughgoing constitutional reforms prior to the implementation of the measures. Half have, have, uh, have not. So again, I think that there's a lot that can be done in the domain of justice without an entirely new constitution. Ultimately, I want to insist on the point I made during my intervention. The issues are interrelated, and both stand to gain from being thought about together. But there is a lot that can be done before the adoption of a new constitution, and I want to insist on the main point with regard to this. It seems to me that the adoption of a new constitution in the midst of conflict is a fundamental and unnecessary mistake. 
Don't forget to sign up for this year's annual justice lecture. This year, Hanim Gali will look at the question of investigative mechanisms, such as commissions of inquiry, and how they can be made more effective. He will reflect on lessons learned and propose the ingredients for a successful mechanism. With a career in civil society, at the UN, in academia, and as part of the Commission of Inquiry for Syria, Hani is definitely a great person to guide us through this conversation. COVID means it will now be online, and so we won't run out of tickets. To join the lecture, register using the link in the episode notes or circulate it in our social media accounts. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tarek Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Molyneux, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ.